Today on Tips from the Top Floor, we'll talk about origin stories and how the best of the best use the simplest tools you can imagine. This is Tips from the Top Floor, episode 875 for August the 23rd, 2019. Tips from the top, from the top floor, tips from the top, all right. Hey, hello and welcome. It's Chris Marquardt. You're listening to Tips from the Top Floor. We are back with another episode. Ah, what has happened? Tons of stuff, tons of stuff going on. Um, but I have a question for you today. What made you want to become a photographer? Now, I discussed that with Monica. And, you know, we were talking about things like the origin stories, the you know, the stuff you see all around the company that was founded in a garage and uh, also popular. It was uh, the, the initial thing was written up on the back of a napkin, that kind of stuff, you know. Have you ever tried drawing on a napkin? Anyway, I, I could go on a rant about origin stories. But yeah, when again, I discussed that um, because she has that pivotal moment that just that one event that got her hooked on photography. She can really pinpoint that. And interestingly, I don't have that. I don't have that one single moment where I decided that, yes, photography is my thing. I do have early memories of photography. Like from back in the 70s, that's how old I am. I remember getting like, I, was, I must have been six, seven years old. I remember getting a cheap camera for my parents. Like a little 35 millimeter pocket camera, one that used these these cassettes. Now, not the not the metal film canister, but it's a plastic cartridge. Some of you might remember that that you put in the camera. Format is called 126. It has 35 millimeter format inside of it, but it's this easier to handle plastic cartridge. Now that's pretty much part of history. Now the only format today that comes close to it is the 110 format. The same type of cartridge, but smaller. And uh, I believe some of that is still available in Japan. But <laughs> good luck finding someone here who will develop them for you. Anyway, so my, my earliest memories of, of photography go back to that camera, that uh, compact camera. And I was talk, I was taking blurry, black and white, close-up pictures of something my mom had painted with a camera flash on. So I had no clue, not I didn't know anything about photography. So it was this wonderful mixture of not knowing about focus distance. I think that camera had a minimum focus distance, a fixed focus, minimum about two feet. So I did a close-up. Pictures were really blurry and flash reflected everywhere. But yeah, that's kind of my first memory of photography. And then uh, I remembered some time I got... I had I tried to find out what camera that was, but uh, later on getting my hands on several different Holgas, which are Chinese cheap plastic medium format cameras. I, it must have been a Holga. I distinctly remember the film advance lever. If you've ever had a Holga, it goes click, click, click. It's very uh, <clears throat> an iconic plastic sound. And I, this must have been one of those. So roll of film, 120, even though 35 was, was predominant there. And uh, Anyway, that's kind of my memories of photography. But then years later, I think I was probably around 14, I began to show an interest in an, in an SLR, like a proper 
air, doing big air quotes here, proper camera. And uh, I remember getting those those photo mail order catalogs. Uh, here in Germany, there were, there were a couple of big mail order companies. And I spent so much time over those catalogs. And I, <laughs> I came in 14, I didn't have any money. And I started saving. And I ended up getting the Minolta X700. Uh, I don't even know why I chose that one. It's probably over the price. Oh, here. Do you hear that airplane outside? Anyway, um, here, uh, that's the X700. Not, this is not the exact one, but it's an X700. Um, and I still, I still use this quite regularly. Um, anyway, I, I got this with a kit lens, which back then was a 50 millimeter. Uh, I think about a 1.7 probably. And yeah, that was a, f a f fixed focus prime kit lens. Um, and I, I know this origin story thing is probably very different today because cameras are ubiquitous. But still, even if you're younger, something must have triggered you to go into in for a bigger camera. For a, again, big air quotes, better camera, like a DSLR or mirrorless camera. Uh, and I'd be interested in that. What triggered your deeper interest in photography? Do you have that uh, pivotal moment? What was it? Tell me. Record it. Send it to voice at tfttf.com. I want to hear that. But another reason I'm telling you all this is that um, one thing I learned back then was to trust my gut, to experiment, and uh, to, yeah, to, to, to try things out. A good friend and I, we were doing photography together a lot, and I remember he had the Canon... I think it was an AE-1, and I had the Minolta, and for some reason we we never even thought about the differences between those cameras. The ca camera envy was not a thing, right? And uh, we also got a bit into developing our own film. I must have been well, probably 15 by that time. So we mail-ordered a, a Yobo development tank, and well, like they look like today, black development tank, red lid, and uh, we we develop uh, we ordered some chemicals with it, and we used the instructions that came with the developer. No internet, right? So um, we developed our own black and white film. And that moment of pulling out that first roll of developed film, I, this might be one of those moments that got me hooked. But I, th that probably all happened earlier. And when it came to doing our own prints. Uh, we, we couldn't have. We didn't have an enlarger. We couldn't afford one. I think we had access to an enlarger at school, but uh, yeah, I, I distinctly remember going to our local camera shop and, and getting photo paper, like a little four by five uh, sheets of paper, and a paper developer, uh, <laughs> the cheapest stuff we could find. Just yeah, no money, and we tried to do our own contact prints, and the way we did that. Was I, I, I distinctly remember going to, okay, we don't have any, any means to do this really, but uh, how about we try this and that? And it was kind of felt logical. So what we did was we went into a broom closet. Of course, you need a dark room for that. And um, we, we disassembled a picture frame, which had a backing piece of like cardboard and, uh, and, a, and a glass 
on the front. So we we disassembled that and uh, we put the photo. When we put it on the floor, the the cardboard, and then we put the photo paper on that, and we uh, put our negatives on top of that, and then we took put the glass, the picture frame glass, on top of that to press it together so we could have a, enough contact there for a, for a print. And then we we didn't have an enlarger or anything, so we simply turned on the light bulb. There was, there was a bare light bulb on the ceiling. And we turned that on, and uh, I think we we gauged it like, uh, yeah, it's probably 10 seconds, we'll be fine. Um, I think something must have been in the in the instructions there, but it didn't say anything about a light bulb. But uh, it was like 10 seconds, let's try this. And after... For ten seconds, we turned it off again, and then we developed the paper. And I've, I still remember for years I had these thirty-five millimeter tiny thirty-five millimeter contact prints uh, of, I think it was a cactus. I was taking pictures of black and white, and because I liked the light and the shape, and it was really that's on my wall for a long time. So so that worked on the first try, and I remember so proud that we had figured out all that on our own, and we got a result. Uh, but of course, you know, I, I knew that the pros didn't work that way. They had enlargers and even for contact prints. I mean, there would be leagues above us, right? Uh, they just have so much better equipment and spe- special rooms for it and so on. So fast forward to August 2019. Uh, just a few days ago, I ran across a video on YouTube, which is a part of an old documentary about Edward Weston. And Weston, I mean, he's he's famous, right? He has been called one of the most innovative and uh, innovative and influential American photographers, and uh, one of the masters of twentieth century photography. That's what Wikipedia says about him. And he shot for forty years. I mean, a lot of this with his field uh, view camera, eight by ten. That's about the largest format negative that you can still uh, buy somewhat easily today. <laughs> Uh, so I watched that video, and it shows uh, an older Edward Weston at work. This was in the late forties, and I mean, he, there's there's this guy. He clearly knows what he's doing. He has a lot of experience under his belt, and in that in that uh, documentary, he goes into his dark room, and he takes that big eight by ten negative and. He has this frame-like device, like a f- picture frame, and he puts a t- eight by ten photo paper in the frame, and he puts the negative on top, and he puts a glass on top, and it just totally reminded me of of what we did back then because it was pretty much the same. And then he does exactly what we did when I was fifteen. He switches on the bare light bulb on the ceiling. I mean, this is one of the most famous photographers of his time, of all time, and he did that. At that point, he's done 40 years of photography and he couldn't care less about enlarges and stuff and like like the real professional stuff, air quotes here. He, he uses the light bulb on the ceiling because that's plenty good to do a contact print. And then he, he goes on during that exposure. It's probably a 10-second exposure and he does some dodging while he's doing this. You know, the, what as you do in a dark room, there's a little piece of cardboard on a stick and he moves that across the paper to make sure it doesn't go too dark in the shadows and there's dodging 
look it up it's in photoshop it's it's the same thing and and he turns the light off again and he goes on to develop the photo and that took me right back to my own experimentation and you know this was one of those moments that jerked me that jerked me back in time and it just gave me this massive smile i mean because it showed me that i wasn't that far off back then <laughs> so i i guess my takeaway from this is that i mean trust your gut more right the fear of making mistakes isn't a good teacher um don't listen to all the gurus out there they will tell you that this is how it's supposed to be done but yeah experiment more don't worry too much if something works or it doesn't go for it try it i mean what's the worst that could happen yeah so there you have it i'll link all the stuff i talked about including that video uh in the show notes so you can watch that yourself this episode is supported by HoneyBook. When you dreamt of starting your business, did you dream about all those admin tasks like drafting proposals and contracts and tracking down payments? If that wasn't part of your vision, you need HoneyBook. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that organizes your client communications, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. HoneyBook makes it simple to run your business better. Professional templates, e-signatures, and built-in automation keep everything on track. And HoneyBook can even consolidate services you already use like QuickBooks, Google Suite, Excel, MailChimp, and Gmail. No wonder it's the number one choice for client and business management for freelancers and business owners. And right now, HoneyBook is offering you, the listeners of Tips from the Top Floor, 50% off, 50% off when you visit honeybook.com slash top floor. Payment is flexible and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. Go to honeybook.com slash top floor for 50% off your first year. That's honeybook.com slash top floor. And I thank them for the support. I um, got a problem. I imported all my photos from an external hard drive to Lightroom, but I think I've now duplicated those into the Lightroom, my laptop hard disk, uh, and I'm running out of space. How do I just keep it on the light, on the external hard drive, and use Lightroom to make additions? Hey, thanks for your question. Um, so I'm assuming you talk about Lightroom Classic. Um, that's the one I know, so that's what I can talk with most authority on. Um, and Lightroom Classic has an import dialog that, yeah, there's a lot going on in there. But um, here's here's kind of what's important when you import, and it, it it has good defaults when you enter when you when you give it a memory card, it will uh, switch to copy mode usually, so it won't delete from your memory card, and it will create a copy. Um, and those options of how how it should handle files, the source files, is at the top middle, right at the top in the middle of the, the import dialog. There's four options there. One is copy as DNG. Then there's copy, there's move, and there's add. And if you import from from, from a memory card again. The default is copy. Takes the picture from the memory card, creates a copy on your hard disk or on your SSD. And then the um, if you select copy as DNG, it will convert it to DNG during the copy. Uh, but I don't use that. It takes too much time. It has no real benefits for me. And then there's the option to move, which does exactly what you think it does. It moves the pictures over to the new location. I don't think it allows you to do this from memory cards, but from like external hard drives and so on. It would move it over. 
Um, so after they're they are um, over, they will be gone from the old location. I rarely use that, and this is for safety reasons. I used to be in software. I use, I know how these things work, <laughs> and uh, um, here's how a move works in computer terms. Uh, and this is the this is the ideal case, right? Step one: make a copy. A move is a copy, first of all. Step two, verify the copy has been properly written. The software should do that. Ideally, at this point, the system would, or Lightroom would read back the copy that it made and compare it with the source. So to be 100% sure that it's, it's, it's readable, right? It, doesn't, it didn't run into disk errors and stuff. And then step three, remove the original. And only remove it when step one and step two have been successful. And... I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. While I assume Lightroom will follow that protocol, I also know this software is programmed by humans and they have messed up in the past. Yes, Adobe programmers have messed up in the past and uh, humans make mistakes. So instead of blindly trusting Lightroom to do the right thing, I use copy instead uh, because it doesn't remove the original. And then once everything is done and verified, I remove the original myself. Another reason I don't use Move is the backups. I try to never get into a situation where there's only one copy of my photos around. I have a memory card, I have a hard drive, and those are two copies, and having those two copies is uh, is a safety belt, right? My pictures get backed up hourly, like my my pictures that are in Lightroom get backed up hourly with the time machine, and then there's also nightly backup to the cloud, and if I copy something, I have that extra copy on the source. Just in case something goes wrong and the destiny... Just imagine your hard drive crashes after a move, then everything's gone. Uh, That's a fallback. And of course, I have to remember to then delete the original source. Uh, The uh, the original once the backups are through. And uh, the reason I'm so, so specific about this is I once lost half a year of photos due to them not being backed up. A hard drive failed, wasn't backed up. So yeah, I've been burnt once. And last but not least, the third option is add, which will add photos from a source to the catalog, but it will not copy or move those source files. They will stay where they are. Um, uh, And also, um, just trying to analyze your problem further, in the import dialog, you can enable in the right-hand side in the right sidebar there's an option that says don't import suspected duplicates which will try to be a bit smart about figuring out what the if those photos are already on your in your catalog and then it will not highlight them for you You can still override that but in general that's a good idea to avoid duplicates now you've you're already in trouble right you've already got yourself in a bit of a mess here by creating duplicates and again, the reason I'd say this happened is probably from a combination of those import parameters. Um, now, I do remember having done that myself before. Um, at one time, I duplicated pictures. I had duplicates in the catalog. And I remember I tried to figure out a way to automatically remove them, which um, I don't think I found. Uh, but depending on the amount of pictures, um, I think I ended up manually selecting those photos. We're talking several hundred photos, so this was a bit of work. Um, But yeah, I manually selected them and uh, then manually removed them in Lightroom. 
if, if you selected pictures, then you can hit the delete key and uh, it'll then give you a few options. It gave you the option to remove pictures, which is in this case not the right option because it's important to note that you can remove pictures from the Lightroom catalog without removing the actual source on your hard drive, the original picture, the one that takes up all the space. So that wouldn't save you any space. To actually remove the original photo, the, the, the source file, the big raw file that you have on your hard drive, um, there is another option in that delete dialog, and that is delete from disk. And that will remove the photo from the catalog and remove the actual picture, the raw file from your hard drive. But of course, <laughs> this goes without saying, don't do anything this sensitive without having a backup of your catalog and your photos, both of them, catalog and photos. So in case of disaster, you always have a way to restore to a good known state. And that was it again for this week. Thank you so much for your time. Of course, if you like this episode, you can buy me a coffee at tfttf.com slash coffee or consider joining the ranks of those wonderful patrons over at tfttf.com slash Patreon. And here is the list of the wonderfully good-looking patrons who actively support the show. Jeremy Kirvin, Jeffrey Block, Alex Crozo, Bernhard Goldbach, Daniel Hertrich, Ken Davidson, Leslie Ridley and Marco Binder, Matt Armstead, Peter Morris, Scott Wurzel, Tom Stewart, Eran Pinasov, Stu Silverman, Alan Bruce Horn, Andrew B., Anthony Bartek Boski, Chetley Clark, Chandra, Christopher Greenhill, David Smith, David Recht, Eng Kyung, Francesco Scaglioni, Greg Anastasi, Holger Krupp, James Trimble, Jim Caldwell, John Donahue, Josh Hopko, Jasmine M.R., Ken Berrien, Kyle Nishioka, Marvin Aaron, Michael Gunnar, Peter M. Spradling, Rob Duber, Robert Goschko, Ryan Gilio, Zina Farad, Stephen Sandler, Thomas Nielsen, Trevor Palmer, and Woody. And I thank you guys so much for your support. And if anyone else wants to be part of this list of wonderful people, just go to tfttf.com slash Patreon. Thank you so much. Music for the show by Jeff Smith, Silent Partner, and Hans Peter Kagerut Publishing and Slack Challenges by Release Pixie Mad Refs. Armset Slack Imitations by Chief Invitation Officer CIO Rusty Russ, who just returned from vacation. But I took over his invitation duties while he was gone. And uh, yeah, if you want to be a member of the Slack, hey, go to tfttf.com slash yslack, W-H-Y-S-L-A-C-K. And uh, Rusty will get you on board. Don't you be sunshine my name is Chris Marquardt. You'll find me on social media at Chris M A R Q U A R D T. Go out and take amazing photos, share them with the world, be nice to each other, and happy shooting. <laughs> <laughs>